The Art Dealer Diaries are brought to you by Medicine Man Gallery, located for over 26 years in Tucson, Arizona, specializing in antique Native American art, early Western art, including the famed Maynard Dixon, as well as modern art. You can find everything online at medicinemangallery.com. There's over 6,000 objects to select from. Also, the Charles Bloom Murder Mystery Series, written by yours truly, me, Mark Sublett. There's six books in this series, and they follow the protagonist Charles Bloom through all the intrigue of the art world set in Santa Fe and the Navajo Nation. These can be found on Audible, eBooks, Amazon, and of course, the gallery at medicinemangallery.com. Well, I had Mark Winter today, and I've been trying to get Mark forever to come on, and he's such an interesting individual that you're going to hear two parts. Today is part one of the introduction, where you're going to learn about Mark and how he got into the business of being an art dealer, being a rug expert, from dealing with people like Shunny and Cher to Elvis. I mean, that's really how far it goes back and the kind of stories that he has. This one's going to be very interesting, so stay tuned. This is part one. Okay. Now we're ready, set, go. Yeah. (laughs) So you're the one that I've been trying to get in this podcast Uh since day one. Even my son goes, oh, you got to get Mark Winter. (laughs) So I've got you. I finally got you. I couldn't get you in the summer. Too busy. Mm -hmm. Now you're here for Thanksgiving. Who knows when this airs, but we're talking to Mark Winter, who is a... Amazing trader, entrepreneur, rug expert, saltillo expert, two gray hills, totalina, trading post owner. Eh, that kind of sums it up. But we're gonna welcome, by the way. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. No. I, so what? The, the fun thing for me, and the reason I want to do this, and you know, I, I, we've had a lot of uh, conversations just sitting in totalina at the trading post talking and. Every time mm-hmm. I just find out one other little thing, it's like, oh, geez, I didn't even know about this. But then I see it in your book. <laughs> so I was so uh, excited about that trading post that it made me write my murder mysteries. For those who don't know it, I write a murder mystery series. But yeah, and it's just fantastic. It's a real deal. But so what I want to get from you, Marky, is I want to go and kind of start at the beginning and find out how you got where you are today. And so where did you grow can't up? Can't remember. Yeah, I know. You, that's why I want to do it now, where you still can't remember. So where did you grow up? Uh, I was born in Japan. That's interesting. Your dad was in the military or what? My dad was in the military after the war. And what did, So this was World War Two. II. And yeah. what, did he, what was he doing in World he War He was an electronics communications guy. And so I was, married, I was born nine months and three days after my dad, or my mom showed up to visit my dad in Japan. Uh-huh. And so she was American? She was American, yeah. And then, and so you were born in Japan, and what year was this approximately? 1950. I, see, I put approximately, because who knows? You, know, yeah. you said you're losing your memory. I can make it up, really. <laughs> <laughs> and so how long were you? did you stay in Japan? Really only about a year, year and a half, so no real memory of being in Japan. And do you get a dual citizenship, by the way? Well, I think when I turned 18, there was an opportunity for that, yeah. to get you know either citizenship or dual citizenship. You know, I didn't care, yeah. so I never did anything yeah. with it. Yeah, maybe I should have. Yeah, no. <laughs> <Who knows? laughs> and so, where did you move? Where did you end up landing? Well, it's military brat. So you know, we first place I lived in the United States was Texas, uh-huh. then Illinois, Washington D.C., Cheyenne, Wyoming, wow. and ended up 
in junior high and high school, which I call the formative years, mm-hmm. really in Southern California. Where? San Bernardino. And did you, were you there for all your junior high and high school? Yes. Oh, you were. And so at that time, um, were you interested in native arts or art at all? Not particularly. No? No. Just doing your thing? And you were no. a big time water skier, Yeah, right? I was water skiing. Yeah, and were you kind doing of, that at that time? Oh, yeah. yeah. I started when I was about 13, 14 water skiing and, and got pretty good for some reason. And, uh, you know, it's, I was as much of a professional water skier as you could be in those days. Mm-hmm. You know, the only real professionals were, you know, Florida-based. Mm-hmm. But we, there was tournaments and competitions, and I competed around the state. How'd you do? I did good. Did you win? Yeah. He did, yeah. <laughs> Southern California champ for a couple of years in oh, a row. Wow. And I was what was called a three-eventer. So we did slalom tricks and jumping. So I, I did all three. And what was your favorite? Oh, slalom. Uh-huh. Yeah, God, that's so fun. And yeah. you barefoot too, right? You're like a big-time barefoot guy. Yeah, I learned to barefoot kind of early on when not very many guys did it. I just I saw a movie or somebody uh-huh. doing it and just thought that looked cool, and so I did that. And, and did you have like a water school thing? Well, yeah, I was I was a slow learner. I had two older brothers that learned quick. I learned slow. So mm-hmm. I was always kind of sympathetic to people that didn't get it real quick because mm-hmm. I was one of them. Right. And so uh, when I first started dealing and first started making money and really in about 1980, I ended up buying a ski boat, start skiing again. I had an opportunity to lease this bay in Navajo Lake, and so we opened a ski school in 1980. He ran it for 10 and years. And what year, 1980. And you ran it from 1980 to 1990? 1990, yeah. Full-time? Well, it was I mean, just a summer. It was summer. Yeah, yeah. It was, yeah, all summers. Yeah, really. So I spent my summers in a swimming suit out on the lake, uh-huh. and you know, all the dealers used to come and trade with me, yeah. and then they could all go water skiing. And some of them really ended up liking it, and so it was always their excuse to come ski with me was to <laughs> tell their wives or significant others, oh, I have to go up and sell Mark a rug. Oh, so so we, we, we mixed it in the together. The sad part is I didn't know you then because I, I had a boat and I liked to water ski. Oh, yeah. We I had, water skied all the time. We lived right on the lake. We had a private bay. We had a slalom course set up. I never did jump again after competing jumping. Mm-hmm. but uh, And we just had a lot of fun. It was a ball. And so, so, kind of going backwards to back to high school, so you graduate when in high school? 68. So that's the Tet Offensive, right, in, in Vietnam. And yes. so how did you deal with that? Well, I moved to L.A. literally a few weeks after I graduated from high school. Mm-hmm. So I had no affinity for my high school or anything. And mm-hmm. So I, I moved to L.A. and was with a guy, and he was, I wasn't really political, I didn't really know. I had an older brother that went to Vietnam, mm-hmm. but um, I didn't want to go kill anybody. I knew that. And how'd your brother do? And so, well, I always said he came back a better person. One mm-hmm. of the few people I know uh-huh. that succeeded in doing that. So he was a little straight and stiff and he kind of loosened up a little in Vietnam. Yes. Yeah. But um, so the guy, I was living with a guy in LA and um, his boss was a water skier. That's why he hired me. So he used to take me down to Mexico and show him how to water ski. And that's when I got into the idea kind of teaching. And um, he was kind of really against the draft, and he went to a draft lawyer, mm. resistance guy in Los Angeles, and got out of the draft. And so that seemed like a good idea to me. I just followed the footsteps. 
So I didn't have to go to the lawyer. I just did what they did, and so what he what that what he had done. Uh huh. What did yeah. your dad think about that being? A well, he hated it. Dad. He was he was really upset that I was not wanting to serve because my older brother served. Yeah. In my, I had two older brothers, and one of them had kids, and so that he got a deferment for yeah. that. But I was I was prime picking. So. Yeah. No, at that time, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I just I didn't want to go, and when they had the lottery, my number ended up a few higher than. They went that year, so you were, you were and so saying. I got I got out of really having to fight it. But I did set this thing up, which was just going. It was really easy. What my friend did, right. I thought I just went to an ear doctor, and yeah. because from you know water skiing and falling a lot, I, my ears weren't really good. Yeah. So I just went to an ear doctor and kind of cheated on the test, and he wrote me a nice letter saying I had a bilateral hearing loss. Yeah. And. Uh, so I, I registered through as my friend had in Albuquerque. So that was where my residence address was yes. because at that time, you know, they were pretty prejudiced against Native Americans and Hispanics. And it's just kind of funny because now that's, you know, more than half the, our fighting right. force is that. Right. And so they had the highest failure rate uh-huh. in the U.S. So they overcompensated. So I, yeah, so I just took this letter. And I had long hair at the time. I shaved my hair and dressed real nice and went in there. And they asked, you know, who who didn't want to serve. And right. Of course, I didn't raise my hand. And yeah. So then they harassed everybody that said they didn't want to serve. But when I, I showed him this letter, and I just by right. that, and he looked in my ear. The doctor looked in my ear and said I'd perforated eardrums, which you can't really see by looking in an ear. Yeah. Was yeah. what I was told. Well, you could see scarring. Yeah. And you probably did have some of that actually. Maybe I did, you but it took more than one. But anyway, under, yeah. so I got so I got a deferment for having bad ears and yeah. you know, not quite like bone spurs or anything. But, <laughs> but you know, I just you know, it just wasn't in my nature to yeah. want to go to and go so shoot that, people. Um problem with your dad persist from that? Oh, he always resented that I yeah. Because he was a lifer in the Air yeah, Force, sure. so he really didn't it wasn't a good relationship ever. So Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. so well, it happens. Yeah, it happens and then uh, and I and I just started kind of doing little odd jobs, and I ended up going to work in this leather factory. And what year would it custom that been? leather factory? So sixty eight. And was that in L A. In L A. Uh-huh. Yeah, and worked for, for and the guy that ran the factory was one of the players in a, a band called Blue Cheer. Mm-hmm. Never heard of it. If, yeah, and they were they were kind of one hit wonders. They had a few hits or something. But I learned how to do leather work and kind of went off on my own and started doing leather work and like making belts and pouches, bel- and, anything yeah. like that. And kind of interestingly, I had one of my older brothers got into the uh, uh, leather work too. And so it was totally incoincidental. He had moved to Florida and but got into it But he did his thing, too. you did your I thing. did my thing, it was oh, totally fine. separate. And, and I started with garments, but then I got into hard leather belts and then ultimately into shoes and doing things and set up my first leather shop probably in 69. In LA? Uh, no, by that time I had moved back to San, around San Bernardino. Oh, okay. Where I knew. and. Um, and I had several shops. There was mountains around San Bernardino. And so I ended up moving up to the mountains. I liked the mountains and moved up there and still had a couple different locations. Ended up in Idlewild. Oh, yeah. And uh, and I because of the Indian connection, I got real interested in Indian things. And so the Indian designs and the Ben Hunt books and that kind of thing. And that was really starting to cook at that time, really big time, right? Yeah, and jewelry was very popular. And so I started in the late 60s 
you know, being interested in turquoise jewelry, buying a little bit of it. Met a couple other guys that were interested in the jewelry too, that had, you know, weekend houses up in the mountains. And one was a film producer and director, and the other was Elvis Presley's drummer. Mm. And so we decided that, you know, to get really nice turquoise, we should go out to the res. So late 60s, I started running around the res, hitting the pawn shops, right. buying old pawn. And then we would, we and he would have Tupperware parties. They both lived in Hollywood, and so we'd have Tupperware parties. Meaning Elvis and... Uh, would come to these yeah. Tupperware parties uh-huh. and buy jewelry from us. And it ended up with Elvis inviting me to come to Las Vegas when he first started playing Vegas. Uh-huh. And uh, I went backstage, and he said, I've got something special for you guys tonight. It's my friend Mark, and he's got this nice yeah. turquoise. And, uh, uh-huh. <laughs> and I took, so I took my stuff out, and Elvis says to his group, he had 20, 30 friends backstage right. after his performance, and he said, everybody pick a piece of jewelry I'm buying. <laughs> so everybody picked a piece of jewelry. Yeah. And he said, just go see that guy. His bodyguards were his old military guys. Right. And so he takes... He says, go see that guy. And I really was very careful, you know. I'm I was, sure you I was were. 19 years old, so I was really careful writing down everything I had done and how much it all was. And, uh, and I walked over to his buddy, who was supposed to pay me, and he, and he said, how much? And I showed him this piece of paper, all the careful math and how much everything right. was. And he just whipped out a big wad of $100 bills and, I don't <laughs> know, gave me three or $4,000. And, <laughs> and so I was, like, kind of overwhelmed by it. I'd never even made a sale that big. And, right. And, then, and you're uh, in the back of a concert, an um, Elvis concert, which you just it, listened to. Yeah, which was great because he got me a row, a seat almost on the front row. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. And he comes over to him and it's done and he goes, Mark, I've got some really good friends coming tomorrow, so can you bring some of that turquoise with you tomorrow too? <laughs> I'm going, sure. So I spent the next day running around the Indian stores in Las Vegas buying jewelry yes. with my newfound money and right. went back that night. And that night it was like a ten thousand dollar sale. Uh, and, and he, he had, did the same thing. He and said he had the concert and the whole thing. Got again. the whole concert, oh yeah, near front row seat. Yeah. And uh, so it was pretty neat. And so he did at that time he was playing for six weeks. In, in Vegas, mm-hmm. and so it went on several times, and then I got to go back for you know the next couple times he played. I went back and did the same thing. So all of a sudden, my business was hugely booming right. with one customer, right? Basically, uh-huh. so, this is like sixty nine, sixty nine, yeah, sixty nine, sixty nine, seventy. And did other dealers hear about what was going on and figure, let me sell to Mark, or you just kept it quiet? I just went, kept it quiet. Yeah. I we were going to the res buying stuff. My two partners and I, and, uh, and and we had held Tupperware parties. I sold to Sonny and Cher, John Davidson, uh-huh. Neil Diamond. Uh-huh. You know, they all knew all these people, and so they would come over. And turquoise was very popular, so we did quite well. And with that, so was that just kind of a domino effect that? Did Elvis and uh, introduce you to like Neil Diamond and Sonny and Cher? No, or the, how did the, that happen? no, the my uh, one partner that was Elvis's drummer was a really great studio musician, ah. and so he played for a lot of people. And he knew them, and he knew a lot of these guys. And he was a real nice guy. He's from Texas, and he was well liked. And uh, he ended up feeling like he was kind of interfering with his professional career. So it kind of he sort of got funny about it a little bit. So we, we kind of started slowing down at that. But by that time, I had my little store, and we were starting to sell turquoise, and the rest is kind of history. And was that in Idlewild? Or that was in Idlewild. That you had your store. And I what used, was the name of the store? Do you remember? The Cobble Shop. The Cobble Shop. 
because I was a shoemaker. Because I was doing leather shoes, and not very many guys did shoes. They did sandals, mm-hmm. they did belts, and all the hard leather right. stuff. But I, I, I went to a store and saw a guy that was making shoes, and I thought, well, that was cool. I could do that, so right. I started doing it. So in, I used to say it was 70, but in 71, a guy came in. I was on the traveling trader route at that time, and mm-hmm. guys were bringing me turquoise to sell. And uh, I bought a little jewelry from him, and he said, I want to show you something. And he took me out to his car, and he had seven old Navajo rugs. And he had just traded jewelry for them in mm-hmm. Palm Springs, and I was up above Palm Springs there. And he, So we laid the rugs all out on the floor. They looked great in the store. I just yeah. loved them. I thought they were so cool. And you had never owned a Navajo rug? or I'd seen them. Yeah. You know, on the res, I'd seen right. people had Navajo rugs. And my wife at the time had bought an older one, uh-huh. a small older one, and I thought it was really cool. And so we laid all the rugs out, and he didn't want them. He knew less about them than I did, and I knew nothing about them. Yeah. <laughs> and he offered me a price, and I said, that's really great, but, yeah. you know, I don't know anything about them or what they're <laughs> worth or anything. And so so then he cut the price significantly, and I said, well, that's good, but I still don't know anything about them. But I did have a little cash on hand. So we folded them up, and walking out to the car, he cut the price again, and I go, well, what the hell? So... I mean, he had all my money, and I had all his rugs, and right. I was, like, nervous that I'd just right. done the wrong thing. And right, I'm stuff. sure. But and you're, like, 21 now? No, I'm 20. Yeah. Well, 21, yeah. yeah. So this is a 71. Yeah. So I still didn't know quite what I'd done. And if I'd done the right thing or wrong thing, one of them was a beautiful storm pattern. Uh-huh. And that was the best of the group. Yeah. And so um, I started trying to find books and read about what I had right. and find out what I'd really bought. And and a, a friend of mine from Idlewild came in and offered me for one of them, not the best one, but the second best one, what I paid for all of them. And I thought, hmm, this is a career. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to make leather goods right. or anything anymore. <laughs> so anyway, so um, I didn't sell it, of course. You did not? No, yeah, I couldn't okay. stand to. Well, was it because you were afraid you it might be worth more or you just liked it? I just liked them. Yeah, so. Okay. You know, and I had them, so yeah. why should I sell them? Right, so. you didn't have to. And I eventually sold them all, even though the nice storm pattern eventually yeah. about 10 years later yeah they all go sooner or later yeah yeah so anyway uh, so that kind of started it and uh, i ended up deciding oh this is what really happens is i'm in the store one day and a guy walks in and he goes uh my name's rex aerosmith and i'm an indian <laughs> i'm an indian art dealer right. in santa fe and i said can you do that? See, and so I started going around antique stores and buying rugs. Uh-huh. And there was a little circuit of guys in Idleball, some people with money. And so I found out I could make 100 or $150 on a rug and about 50 or $75 on a basket. So I'd spend the day running around L.A. antique stores. That was sort of the market. And so I started selling them mm-hmm. unless I wanted to keep them. Probably the one of the funniest things was is when I bought the seven, I considered it the beginning of my collection. So I looked at that at, moment. At that moment. Oh, oh yeah. I looked at it as a because I was a bug collector, a stamp collector. Yeah, you, you had know. it. Yeah. Okay. So I had that disease. What else did you collect besides bugs and stamps? Do you oh, remember comics? Pretty much comics. You know, Coins. I you know, everybody when we had slot cars, 
race slot cars. I ended up with everybody's track and everybody's slot cars. So I had these really elaborate slot car race tracks because I had so much track. I could do all these over under things. You know, before right. that became a popular thing to do. You have do. any of those still? Or no. Yeah, none one. of those. And so. Um, so what was Rex? How did Rex find you? Do you know? Well, yeah, because I had bought a collection of artifacts in Hemet. And it was mostly stonework, matatis, and things. And there was miscellaneous artifacts there. But it had been advertised in a paper, and somebody told him about it. And then he called the lady. The lady said, oh, I sold it to that that young man from Idlewild. And so he came in. And he looked around, and my stuff was mostly, you know, immature, except for the rugs, which I didn't want to sell. I made it real clear to him. So he looked around. He's a very, very gracious, very nice man. And right. then he said, you want to see what I do? And I said, sure. So he takes me out. He just bought a big collection of beadwork. So he had war shirts and <laughs> these vests and pipe bags and everything. I was amazed. Yeah. And I said, you can do that? He goes, oh, yeah, I have a store in Santa Fe. There's a lot of stores in Santa Fe that do this. And I thought, oh, my God. So that night after he left, I tooled a sign. I got a piece of leather, yeah. cut out, tooled a sign that said, this shop for sale. <laughs> And I was going to sell my store and move to the Southwest and become an Indian art dealer. And you'd never been to Santa Fe. Never been to Santa yeah. Fe. So, so anyway, so uh-huh. some guy came along. Had a he came, was from a family in New York. He had some money in the family. Had a, he probably had an airplane. Yes. He sold his airplane, bought my store. I taught him how to do leather work, and packed up my stuff with my new girlfriend and moved to Southwest Colorado, thinking that the ranches around there would probably have a lot of Navajo rugs. They were close to the reservation, and there'd be a lot of rugs on these ranches. Uh-huh. And so that was my way of thinking. That was your thinking. I, knew, I, I moved to Pagosa Springs. I knew nobody there. Had you been there even? Never even been there. Why Pagosa? Uh, well, I really wanted to move to Durango. Yeah. But it was in the fall, and so school had just come on, so there was no houses for rent. So I kept looking around, and everything was kind of subpar. And and some guy said, well, there's a lot of places for rent in Pagosa Springs. They don't have a college. Yeah, so you went there. So I went there, and it was 10 times as beautiful as Durango. So I said, this is fine. And so I had a, by that time, I had a new little baby, ah. a new little baby girl, Amber, yep. which you know. Yep, I do. And uh, so... Um, that was it, you know. I so I started putting ads in the paper and running around, and I met Jackson Clark, senior. Did you have a name of a business at this point? No, no. no. We were just doing. I was just thing. buying and selling stuff. Uh-huh. So I met Jackson Clark, senior, and uh, I would go in there. He had a he was the Pepsi bottler and distributor, and then he he started in '57 trading. Pepsi for accounts that couldn't pay on the res for rugs. So he had had established this little side rug business. In in the Pepsi plant, he had a rug room, and they had a little bit of jewelry, mostly rugs. And uh, was this in Pagosa? No, this in he was in Durango. That's what I thought. Yeah, and so we, uh, um, and so he knew I kept coming in and asking about rugs and asking about rugs Mm -hmm. and stuff. And I wanted old rugs. I didn't want new rugs. And so he decided, unbeknownst to me to there's a electrical co-op magazine in rural Colorado. And so he put ads in it to buy rugs. Mm-hmm. And he had a big file, probably mm-hmm. had 30, 40, 50 responses to people at old rugs, but he never did anything with it. He didn't really know old rugs, but he knew I wanted him, and he was kind of right. commercially inclined enough that, right. well, I should find him some was right. kind of the attitude. So one day went in there, 
I went in there asking for old rugs, and he goes, well, I might have something better than that for you. Mm-hmm. And he pulled out this file, and he gave, and there was all, the, some had pictures in it, and some didn't have pictures right. in it. And he said, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll go down to the bank. I'll open an account. We'll call it Mark Winter Special Account. And I'll put money in it. The banker was his high school friend the, from Bank of Durango. And so he said, you go out. I go, well, what should I buy? How much should I spend? He goes, whatever you can make money on. You know where, <laughs> you know your market in California you've been going to see, and you know what you can sell. I trust you. Just go buy whatever you want to buy. And here's all these letters. And so I got in my car, spent about a week. And this is before cell phones, so he had no idea. He just saw checks coming into the bank and said, how much? How much? <laughs> and I just, I just kept buying because they were really, those days, nobody you know, really had a lot of value on them. And this was all Southern Colorado stuff? Yes, Southern and Central, but Western Colorado. Uh Western Slope is what they call it. And the amazing thing is they still had the rugs. They hadn't sold them. Yeah, well, nobody had really been, nobody had done it yet. Yeah, Yeah, nobody was picking the area. So I think I bought 38 rugs. Anything great? With good stuff, yeah, nothing great yet. But gotten all good, nice stuff. And so Jackson was sort of freaking out because these checks kept coming in. So he right. wondered what the hell he got right. himself into. So I go back, and I have all these rugs, and he's going, you spent a lot of money. I said, you told me to buy whatever I wanted. And I start showing him these rugs, and he's looking kind of glary-eyed, shaking his head, going, right. okay, can you sell them now? Right. <laughs> I go, oh, yeah. Again, no cell phones. So I pile my wife and little daughter into the car, and we go to California. And basically— L.A.? Yeah, we, yeah, I went back to Topanga yeah. at the time, where my friend from that played with Elvis was living, and I he had a guest house, so I, I stayed there, and I just kind of sat around, and I met a couple people that bought a couple rugs, and the word kind of got out that I had all these rugs coming from Colorado, and it took a few weeks mm-hmm. for the word to get out, but I started selling a few, and then I'd sell five here and five there and six there, and I went and cashed all the checks. There wasn't good communication, like no cell phone. So Jackson didn't have a clue if he'd ever even seen me again. You're gone. Yeah, your rugs I'm, are gone. I'm gone. I went to California with his with all the rugs and his money. <laughs> so I came back. I came back, and he was really happy to see me. Sure I wasn't real communicative. <laughs> you know, I didn't know that was my responsibility right, yeah. or anything. I was you're still a, young. Right? I was just a kid looking you're like for like 25, maybe. Oh no, I was like 20. Yeah, 20. Yeah, I was by that time I was 25. Yeah, and so uh, I went back. And he was real happy to see me. Well, how'd we do? I said, well, we did pretty good. I sold the rugs, all of them, every one of them. And so I pulled out, and I cashed all the checks for everybody, so I had yeah. cash. And I forget how much we'd spent, twelve, fifteen thousand $15,000, a lot more than he intended to. So right. I just rattled off the $15,000 and laid it down. And then I had another stack of about eight or $9,000. And so I counted out the eight or other $9,000. And he's looking at it going home. He goes, so we split that? And I'm going, no, I have my own. <laughs> he goes, that's mine? I'm going, yeah. He looks at me and goes, can you do that again? <laughs> sure he did. <laughs> Easier than bottling Pepsi. It was though. exactly right. And so uh, we formed this partnership. It was probably a year or a year and a half later went through one because he was kind of the good housekeeping seal of approval in the Indian business at that time. He st- mm-hmm. helped start IACA and right. was a really well. So it was res- really kind of him and Rex because Rex was Rex he opened kinda, his store in '59 in Santa Fe. Yeah, so they're kind of yeah, much they're they were contemporaries. Yeah. and both of them were really highly respected. Right. And Jackson was wholesaling jewelry and rugs and everything to all these different places, and so. They people start finding. He started talking about these old rugs, and so we. He got a letter from Pittsburgh, 
and there was a beautiful third phase. And by that time, I had studied enough. I knew what a beautiful third phase looked like. Yeah, and how did you learn? Where did you get your information? I mostly just, you know, really the main book I read ever was Gil Maxwell. Mm. It's a little pamphlet. And so I kind of knew what it was. But this thing looked beautiful. And so Jackson goes, well, maybe we could get it sent here. And I said, I think I should fly there and look at this thing. And it was from one of his friends that he knew in the Indian business. So I flew out there. And when I got there, in the meantime, Jackson had got a call from a lady who was an attorney, and she supposedly had a little blanket. And so I went to see her first, mm -hmm. and she had a beautiful little child's blanket, Bayetta child's blanket. And she had bought it at some garage sale or something for very little money, and she wanted $700 for it. She was not going to take any less. That was $700. And so it was beautiful. And what year would have this been? 76. Yeah, okay. So I... And so I called Jackson. I said, you know, this is a beautiful job. So I think $700 is... I didn't really know the market. I yeah, didn't I'm know sure that much didn't. about right. it. You know, yeah. there, there wasn't a public market. No, no, no. But, Not you know, by this, really. you know, Silverman had started collecting. And I had a friend that was... That had lived... That we were housemates. He was in the house I rented in Pagosa. And then I rented it afterwards. And we became friends. And so I knew what was kind of going on. That there was people paying thousands of dollars mm. for these things at that time. And uh, so I bought this. So my first real blanket wasn't the chief's blanket. It was this little $700 right. child's blanket that was nice. Had a little bit of damage, but it was nice. Right. So then I went over to see the big chief's blanket. So you flew out to Pittsburgh? I flown, I flown to Pittsburgh. So I went to see this yeah. attorney and bought this right. little child's. And then I went over to see the lady with the third face. And she, you know, and I didn't quite know what it was. But Jackson thought it was nice, and he goes, just buy it if you think. You have good luck. Just If you think you should buy it, just buy it. He was like, he was very trusting. Not good instinct. He thought I had Not good knowledge. You have good luck. Yeah, yeah. I had good. I, he just thought that I somehow knew more than I did about these. The lady wanted $1,500 for this beautiful bay at a cheese blanket. Yeah. The only problem was those old irons that are kind of diamond-shaped yes, at one end, you know, that you it. put on the stove. Yeah, had one of those on it. Yeah. And so I thought... You know, it's just so beautiful. I got to have it. So I bought it and came back and showed it to him. He was a little concerned. It didn't burn through. So one good side, it yeah. had the burn stain on the other side. And Jackson had heard of Persian Rug Cleaning Company and knew that they did reweaving. In Los Angeles. In Los yeah. Angeles, mm -hmm. right. And so we went up to show it to Dr. Joe Benweed, who Joe, who uh, Jackson knew. Who was the expert. In who was the steps, expert, right? yeah. And he had started on, I think, 72 or 73 on his, you know, national trip to go to all the museums to, he was the note, one of the really noted anthropologists and archaeologists. Right, and he actually understood yarns and things that were going well, on. Well, he was learning. He, yeah. he knew pretty good by that time because it was several years later, but Earl Morris had been the curator of anthropology at University of Colorado Museum before him. Mm -hmm. So he built him a fabulous pottery collection. And all Joe was an anthropologist and archaeologist, the pots were there. Mm -hmm. So Joe ventured off into textiles. And so he was, and so he's not. So anything I'd read or anything I'd talked to people, it, it wasn't what I saw in these. Mm. It was different. What I mm -hmm. saw was different than what I could read or hear people talk about because I don't think people knew anyway. Right, not at that time. They really didn't. So when I took these little blankets up to Joe, he started talking, and he made sense. He was telling me what I was seeing, mm. and that was the first time it happened. You know, and I thought, wow, this guy... 
Was that the first time nope. you had figured out what Bayetta was? Well, I, I could see it, you know. Right. I you could didn't just, really know why. You uh, knew, you, I knew it was different, yeah. and I knew enough about the term that yeah. they ravel materials, yeah. and, I, and I figured that this was all what it was. Yes. But I... Talking to a few friends at the time, rug dealers, you know, nobody really knew. So, right. <laughs> so then what they said made make sense. Joe made a lot of sense to me. So I thought that was pretty cool. So, so uh, Jackson decided that we had a nice treasure, which Joe. So we sent it off to Ozunian, and I think Ozunian charged us about eighteen hundred. To fix that one spot, yeah. and then a few salvage edge things. So and they stuff. What, rewove the area. Yeah, they that? just unwove it and yeah. rewove it in. And so Jackson, Jackson couldn't believe that we paid more to for it than we paid for it. So well, now see we have a better cost. Now we have like thirty three hundred dollars right. in this blanket. So the day I picked it up at Alberts was a, one of the great Western shows, which were one of the great old Indian shows. I never even knew there was an Indian business. Right. And I walk into the show and there's all these guys selling old Indian things. And I'm like, <laughs> wow, I didn't even know this existed. You know, I thought you bought and sold them in antique stores, right. you know. And there was all these guys, you know, Ron Munn and uh, just the early, early day traders. And that what were year would have this Ronnie been? guy, 77 now. 77, okay. And so I was like shocked. And so I kind of thought I knew what I was doing. And there's this Bayetta Serapi laying on a table with a bunch of pottery on it. So I went and asked the people, how much is the Bayetta Serapi? And... I didn't say that, but how much is this blanket? Right. And he said, oh, we've got this big collector from Chicago coming in, flying in today to look at it. I'm going, well, how much is it? Because <laughs> I had sold a car that day. I'd taken a Suburban out to L.A. and sold uh -huh. it. So I had $3,000 in my pocket. And so I said, well, how much is it? And they were like, no, oh, we, we want to show it to our big collector. Yeah. And so I talked around a little bit. It was Terry Shermeyer and her sister, mm -hmm. and John, the ex-husband, yes. or the ex-husband, not the late husband, yes. I should say. And they didn't want to even talk to me. I was just a little kid, and nobody knew I wasn't, you know, anything. And so I said, well, I'd really like to buy it. No, no, no. So I talked around to a few people, and somebody said, well, they, they paid $300 for it, and they think it's worth 1000 Can you imagine that kind of markup? <laughs> so I'm thinking... I'd pay $1,000 for that because I had just loose money in my pocket. Right. So the big collector flies in from Chicago, which turns out to be George Marsick. Right. <laughs> and so, so they take the blanket out from the pots. They go into Don Bennett's booth. Tony Berlant's standing there. Marsick's standing there. Tom Buffalo is standing there. Mm -hmm. And they're all talking about what it is because it had some light powder blues and it had some Brazil wood kind of brown dyes. And real a real dark bayetta, and then some of it was recarded into so it's odd colors. Yeah. It was a slate blanket. It was an unusual, very piece. unusual. Yeah. And so everybody's talking about what it is, and I'm just this kid standing there listening to them all talk about it, you know, because I wasn't one of these big hot shots that right. we all knew about. And Don Bennett says, "Well, I don't really know about you. I think it's a Chinley revival." <laughs> 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 and so I went, "That's not a Chinley revival." So I said, well, I don't really care. I stepped forward and said, I don't really care. I knew he wanted $1,000. And I said, I'll give you $1,100 for it. And everybody was sort of aghast. Everybody stepped back like, what? <laughs> you know? And Jordan Marsick turned from their customer into their agent. Because he didn't, he, was, he wasn't the 
not the most high-dollar buyer. I would call him cheap, but I wouldn't say that about somebody. So he goes, he goes, make it 1200 Yeah. And I went, oh, here's, here's what I did first. I had the chief's blanket back from a pair. Yes. Nobody's paying attention to me. So I went out and got it, and I came in and said, well, I'm really a collector, and I showed this chief's blanket. Well, Tom Buffalo's eyes blew out, Berlant's eyes blew out, and they're all, I distracted them. So they're all thinking about my third phase. Right. And so I said, well, I'll give you $1,200. You know, I'll give you 1100 Marcik becomes his agent. You know, she goes, well, I'll, how about 1200 yeah. So I go, okay. So I whipped somebody out of my pocket, gave him the 1200 took my blanket out under my arm and started walking out. Well, right. Chiefs under one arm, my new right. serapi under the other arm. And all of a sudden I feel somebody tugging at the blanket. And he goes... That's a pretty unusual blanket. What is that? Because you sort of tug it. And I held it on. And I go, well, I think it's a Navajo slave blanket. I think that's what this is. And that's why it's got all these Hispanic yeah. colors and everything. By then, I was getting a little more knowledgeable, and I'd seen a little more right. stuff. I went to all the museums. That's where I learned the most was going to museums and looking at what they call stuff. So he goes, well, you know, that's pretty unusual. And I said, this red's bayonet. And Buffalo said, nobody was very knowledgeable in those days. So I go, that's fine. But what about the third phase? And I said, I'm a collector. And he's going, you know how much that's worth? And I'm going, no. <laughs> mm -hmm. He goes, it's worth a lot of money. That's a really nice blanket. So I go, okay. So I get in my car and I drive back to Colorado. When I get back to, got to get back to Jackson, he says, I got a call from a guy named Tom Buffalo. I'm going, yeah. And he goes, he offered me $10,000 for our chief's blanket. <laughs> So I go, oh, fine. Look at what look what I got. <laughs> so I was more excited about the new blanket right. I got and show sharing him that than caring about his ten thousand dollars. And Jackson goes, well, what do you think? Yeah. Well, here's a big business guy. He's got big businesses and he's got money and he's got everything. And I'm just this kind of hippie kid with by that time two kids, and I said, or maybe a pregnant wife in Amber. Right. And I said, you know. I'd rather keep it. And so he thought that was funny because I could have used the money a hundred times more than him. Yes. My kids were without shoes. He was a big business guy. And he saw I, the blanket was more important to me than the money. Yeah. And that was like a shocker yeah. for him. Yeah, because for him it wasn't at that point. It wasn't. And so because I thought it was more important than the money, he goes, okay, let's keep it. That was the beginning of the Durango collection. That one blanket. That one blanket. And it's still there, I assume. Yeah, it's yeah. still at Fort, it's at Fort Lewis College. Well, what happened Durango. to the slave blanket? Well, at one time, Jackson kind of got cancer and, and ended up getting divorced, had a big change in life, and he made me sell some of the things that were a little more obtuse in the collection in his way of thinking, mm. which were a few Saltillos and Rio Grands because I kind of went crazy finding stuff and buying stuff. He had great contacts, and so I started buying stuff that was really good. Jackson started taking out bank loans and got to a lot of money, and finally he said, we have to pay some loans down, so sell it. So I sold it mm -hmm. and ended up buying it back again because I couldn't stand how long it. Ago, how long after you sold it did you buy it back? Do you remember? Oh, probably within a year. Oh, yeah. Very cool. You know, it was pretty close. Yeah. Yeah. And Josh Baer was starting to be in the vault. And so this is, now we're getting closer to 1980. 
maybe eighty one or something. Yeah, and I I guess we had our first show in nineteen seventy nine. This is the Durango of the Durango. So let's talk about the Durango collection. So Mm -hmm. for people who wouldn't know what this is, so you took this first cheese blanket which you bought, and at that point, did you go? Let's build something, like a real collection of things? Well, I was a collector, so that was just my natural tendency. Yes. So I've had this third phase, and then we had the Serapi, and Jackson had found a child's blanket draped over a barbecue grill outside of Salt Lake City. He knew it was something, and so he bought that, and he had a red Germantown, like with the salt and pepper. Yeah. So we kind of pooled, and I had some regional rugs. I had some nice regional rugs. We kind of pooled the whole deal together. And and our banker, who was financing this, said, I got a great idea, you guys. Why don't you show all these blankets you've been buying in my bank, and we'll call it the Bank of Durango Collection. And so Jackson said, well, that'd be fine. And I said, well, I don't like the Bank of Durango Collection. All yeah. they did was finance, and we did the work right. and took the hit. Why don't we just call it the Durango Collection? So that's how that happened. Yep. So we at so this what was year would have that 79, been? seventy nine. We opened a show at the bank okay. of all these different things we'd started to collect, and it was a huge hit. And the banker wanted to buy in, and I said no, yeah, because he was a little shoo shrewd a businessman for me. I thought so. It. We kept buying things, and Jackson was enthusiastic because I'd bring something new he'd never heard of. You know, like I bought a Hopi Kachina cape in Denver for, Mm -hmm. I think, $600 or something. It was a beautiful one. They weren't very much money then. And he never seen one, and so he loved kind of learning about it and seeing this. And so, yeah, sorry. That's okay. And so so anyway, we... uh, um, And so... He had was good friends with the director of the Utah Museum of Natural History, and he asked if he could show the collection. So our first real museum show was 1980 at the Utah Museum of Natural History. So for the next 10 years, the collection traveled And how many did you have at that point in time? For that show, we probably had Jackson beefed it up with some contemporary rugs, mm-hmm. and I'll bet we must have had 50 or 75 things by that time. Um, but mostly old? Mostly old. And did you have things like a first phase at that point? No. Or a second phase? Well, I had I had bought a second phase is because Jackson and I continued in business at the same time we were collecting. Mm. So I had a second phase that I had bought relative to our business, fifteen thousand dollars or something. Jackson was kind of freaked out by it. Yeah. And then we also a beautiful Serapi had come up that had come out of Kit Carson's family over in Colorado. Mm-hmm. And so that was cool. And so by that time prices were booming. You know, and this was early '80s by now. The 1980, yeah. And this was, and so prices were doing. Silverman was paying ten thousand dollars a piece, and then there was a few Serapis that had gone up to like thirty or forty thousand, and there was this beautiful red, white, and blue Serapi, really fancy, and it was twenty eight thousand dollars. And Jackson's going, "What the hell?" In for a dime, in for a dollar, <laughs> you know. So he bought it. That made him pretty nervous, yeah. though. That by that time, I'd broken into his nervousness. To back up a little, in '77 right before the Santa Barbara collection opened up for Saltillo Serapis, I had become a fan of Mexican Serapis. So we bought a classic Saltillo out of Santa Barbara for $6,000. That's a lot of money. It was a lot of money. And and Jackson, it was right before Halloween, and Jackson donned a sombrero in his new 
$6,000 Mexican poncho and went as a bandito to a Halloween party. <laughs> and I thought, oh, no, <laughs> this was too much. But so that was my big introduction into the Saltillos. And I paid the most anybody had ever paid for a Saltillo, but it was pristine. And what was it original. that turned you on so much about those? Well, they were just so fine and beautiful and, you know. Fine and texture-wise. Texture-wise. Really... So they were so intricate. Yes. And I saw them as being worth more than Navajo blankets intrinsically, but not market-wise. And so 6000 was a record price at that time for a saltillo, but it was such so nice. And Jackson, like I said, Jackson was kind of, well, I haven't done bad with this kid yet. I'll right. just stick with it. And so we... And that uh, be became part of the Durango that collection? That became part of the Durango collection. And then we had a few lesser Mexican serapes, and by that time I'd bought a couple of Rio Grands and a few Pueblo things. So we had... My idea was kind of like a coin collection or stamp collection. Right. You know, fill in all the spots is how yes. I looked at it. So when we showed the Durango collection at the Utah Museum of Natural History in 1980, it was late 1980, uh, it was really successful. We got a lot of accolades. We had a lot of other museums all of a sudden interested in it because we had approached it differently than anybody else had. Mm -hmm. Some guy bought a bunch of Germantowns or some guy bought a bunch of this. Right. But nobody had really laid it out like that. And the other thing I did is I put some of the blankets on mannequins, and that was a huge hit. Was that a first, do you think? To do it? Yeah. Silverman did it first. Yeah. And so I, I emulated his. Yeah. He put a couple on yeah, mannequins, cool. and he had his little museum and had beautiful things, you know. And so... Were you guys competing for material? No, not really, cause, because he was... You know, he was advertising in by that time Indian Art Magazine, and so he was getting expensive stuff. We were out working the field, yeah. more or less. Yeah. So we were buying way below what he was paying. And he so, only wanted the best, and you needed to pay for your kids' yeah, food. Yeah, so we yeah. were, but we got really we had got really lucky. Jackson had great contacts. I was, every week, I was chasing some blanket in some other part of the country or something and, mm -hmm. and buying it. And we were also selling. You know, we weren't, we were, we were keeping what was important, but we selling duplicates and, and the biz business was good and it was brisk and we we're making money on things. So he was just as happy as a little, mm -hmm. little pea in a pod, you know. Did you have a plan, do you think? Did you go, okay, when we get to this point, we got to stop or go no, sell it? Or not, it was, to me, it was limitless. Yeah, just keep buying. It was right just things, keep buying right? and just do it, you know. <laughs> he had a little different idea about it. And like I said, when he got cancer and he had his change of life, it became... Yeah. He saw an ending point. He, he saw like an ending point. I didn't see an yeah. ending point. I was like just getting started as far as yeah. I was concerned. And so what happened then when he did? Well, he, he, um, the, the, the collection toured for the next 10 years, all through the 80s. Mm, just different museums? Different museums all over the country. California, St. Louis Museum, Dallas. Did that provide, Dallas, did that bring you in more brought in more Brought in more material, yeah. exactly. Yeah, so that was good. We were in Houston, you know, we were, like I said, we were in St. Louis, Salt Lake City, California, Arizona. We were just, we're, it was popular. Did you feel you were uh, an expert in rugs at that point? Well, I, th I think uh, I was the only one that saw what was really going on. Yeah. And because nobody, nobody looked. Yeah. And that's all it was. And Joe taught me to look. Yeah. That's all it was. And so I, so I could think on my feet. And sometimes, as we know in the art business, that comes in handy. Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, and so, yeah, I got known as as this expert, especially after buying that slave blanket in '76. You know, because it got around that there was this great slave blanket, and Winter was the only one that knew who it was. Right. And my neighbor in Topanga said, "You know, this is it. You're going to be known as the expert." And I, 
it didn't mean I didn't even know what it meant yeah. when he said it. I realized later, a little later in life, who what he he was way ahead of me. Right, he's in, in thinking, yeah, and he was a rug collector. So anyway, toured. We kept adding to it. We would we we sell. We'd add. We'd sell. We everything. And then Jackson decided because of his change in life and everything, he was moving to Texas. He wanted to sell the whole collection. I wasn't ready for this. Concept. What year was this? So this started in 88. Yeah. He decided we need to sell this whole group. Yeah. And so we had some German people that came and looked. We had some Japanese people that came and looked. And I was really against seeing it leave the country, you know. Yeah. And Bill Ziff from Ziff Publishing yeah. came and looked at it, and he liked it a lot. And then uh, an offshoot of the Ballantine family, as in Ballantine Books and all, mm-hmm. owned the Durango Herald. And they decided it was really a great Durango treasure that it should not leave. And so uh, Richard and Marilyn Ballantyne, who owned and ran the Durango Herald, uh, wanted to come see it. And so they came over to Pagosa. I had rented an old bank vault there, and that's where we kept the collection. Mm -hmm. And they came to see it and uh, said, okay. And so, but here's what they wanted to do. They would buy Jackson's half. And they'd buy half of my half, but they didn't want me out of it. They knew it was my deal, and mm-hmm. I had done the work, and I had done the research, and I was the one that knew it. And so I thought it was so I'd get new partners that were even wealthier and were very enthusiastic. Mm-hmm. And so I and thought you keep half of and your I kept half. and I kept half of my half. So mm-hmm. it was by far the most money I'd ever gotten in my life. So I was I was a happy camper. Yeah, and. Uh, and so, and they were really nice folks, and they were very enthusiastic. And so we, so we did that in 1989. They bought, they bought three quarters of the Durango collection, mm-hmm. kept me as a partner, and said, "Well, where can we go here?" And I'm going, "Well, we need a first phase. <laughs> we have a re- nice second phase, but we don't have a really great right. early second phase." Yeah. And so we kind of made, I kind of laid out where I thought we could go, and they said, "Okay, let's Good. go for it." Yeah. Yeah. So we underbid the half a million dollar blanket first phase at Sotheby's in 91. Yes, I remember that. Yeah. I remember that so we underbid that. And uh, and we bought an Anasazi Monta. And we and we traded with Michael Koch and had a first phase. Mm. And so I traded him some blankets out of the Durango collection. We got a first phase. So we were off and running mm. then. And the collection continued to tour, and we were constantly upgrading, constantly upgrading. And Richard and Mary Lynn thought we should get a permanent facility for the collection. Mm-hmm. So we started looking around at buildings in the in Durango area. And um, it, they kind of decided that it should be associated with Fort Lewis College in mm. Durango. Which is a great college. By the yeah, way. which was a great college. It's... It's about 4,700 students. Yeah, it's it's, it's beautiful. 17% Native American. Yeah, nice. Native Americans go there for free. Yes, nice. so, I didn't know that. Yeah, oh, so I thought, I thought, and mostly they were Navajos because that's what it's close to. Yes, right. So it was, it's, I got into the spirit of the whole idea. That right. we, and so Ballantine family raised $6 million to build what was called the Center for Southwest Studies. Mm-hmm. And then Ben Nighthorse Campbell, who was, I just saw a bracelet you had by. Yes. Got us a million dollars from the federal government, and uh, uh, and there was another million came in from maybe from the state. Somebody knew somebody from the state, so we had eight million dollars to build this building for. But we had to pledge the collection to them, mm. 
So we pledged it, and in 1999 and 2000, we gave 275 pieces, valued at about, I don't know, $3.5 million mm. to Fort Lewis College. Wow, wow. So, and so did all of it go, even your half of your half? Oh, yeah, my half of my half went. Yeah. It all went. And by that time, we had first face, second face, third face, man's, woman's. Right. We had Montas. We had Serapis. We had everything. It was a really nice collection. There was a lot of really unique pieces in there that could you could never find again. And so I've been to that college and went up there, and they don't have, at least when I was there, they only had a few things on display. Does that, what do they do with That's the a collection? little separate issue. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I don't know if I want to put that yeah. on tape. Yeah. There's... We built three galleries, yes. and I say we. I was somewhat involved with the design. I was involved with the project, but mm -hmm. I was not the principal at this point. But there was three main galleries in the Center of Southwest Studies. One gallery was supposed to be always for the Durango Collection. So there's always be a portion, mm -hmm. a good-sized portion right. on display. But there's been several different directors who had different ideas about what to do, right. who, weren't, who weren't exactly blanket crazy. Right. So there's been times it hasn't been on display. And I felt I was a little bit, in the, though it was supposed to be, and that was part of our, we endowed it too, so, and so we had care. And if anybody did want to come see it, they just have, they have to contact and say they want to see it. If they don't have staff there to handle it, they have to hire specific mm. staff so people so it's viewable. Mm -hmm. So these are problems I had trying to view things in museums. Right. Parking, you had to be able to park free real close to the collection rather than pay, you know, the normal college things and stuff. So I went through all these things and I told Ballantines, this is what I think we should do. This is a good way to do it. And so they agreed, and so we did it, but it didn't always live up to that, and so and hasn't always lived up to that. So I've been a little disappointed a few times, and I've had a few people call, and they refused to show it. And mm. so I called and said, you, it's yeah. part of your endowment. You have to do this. Right. And so they were allowed the next day to get in there to they see it. And yeah, see it. So. And how many tech cells are there? Well, we gave them about 280. Wow, yeah. And, and they so, have the storage. They, so they have some storage. Oh, they have. Oh, yeah. They built up to date storage. Yeah. So it's a all beautiful the, building. All the space savers. Yeah, yeah. it was a beautiful it building. Is, yeah. yeah. And it mainly is. They have a, a lyceum. They have a few uh, uh, schoolroom classrooms, mm -hmm. and then the museum area, which is for showing. And then they have a library. The Center of Southwest Studies started as right. a library. So they have a big library yeah, there. Yeah, it's very nice. Yeah, so it's and a so nice. what year did you give that? What, when did that all go down? We we split the gift for tax reasons between 99 and 2000. Okay. So and I didn't pay income tax for several years. Yeah, no, not if you give that much. That's yeah. Right. So in 2000, now you've gotten rid of your collection. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure knowing you as I do, at that point you're thinking, what's next? Well, I had already started on what's next long before then. When Jackson didn't want to buy things, I did go ahead and buy them, and he yeah. didn't care. Yes. And in 85, he, when he started his you know, change of life, I'll call it, he wanted to dissolve our partnership. He didn't want to dissolve the Durango collection, but he wanted to dissolve the partnership. Mm -hmm. And so he helped me get a loan from our banker, and so I bought him out of our business inventory. So I was on my own basically by then. That's 85? Yeah. yeah. But I had started in the 70s already buying Saltillos, and that became a big focus yeah, of Yeah, your mine, first one was in 77. You know, 70, first classic. Yeah. Although I bought secondary stuff, but the first classic was in 77. And so by 85, how many Saltillos had you managed to squirrel away? Probably 20. Yeah. 
So a lot at that time. And these were a variety from late classic, classic no, that, but that, that time, By that time, I probably had 100 Serapis. Yes. But I had 20 or 25 classics. That's a classic. Yeah. And so I've continued in that reign. And, and I started doing so in what year? 92. In 88, I was approached by the Museum of... Well, actually, Christine Mather and Jack Parsons did, did the book Santa Fe Style. Mm-hmm. were doing a follow-up book they called Native America, which they did. And I was known as a Native American collection, so they came to my house to photograph my house, how I had my collection. This was in Santa Fe? This was in Pagosa Springs. This was still in Pagosa. You hadn't gotten to Santa Fe. So I had built an office outside and, and our house, and I thought, well, if they're going to go see all these people that have Navajo rugs and Navajo blankets all over their walls. I'm going to put my saltillos up. Yeah. So I had saltillos all over the walls. <laughs> all classic saltillos. All classic saltillos. On, I thought they'd Were be they there. on mannequins or no? Some were, yeah, yeah. yeah. And Christine Mather was with the Folk Art Museum, so she knew classic saltillos yes. very well. And so they came in my house, and they looked around, they go, oh, and I'm going, well, what? They're going, well, the book's called Native America. <laughs> and these are really considered more Hispanic. I'm right. going, but they were made by Native Americans. For Hispanic. And they went, yeah, but right. we're not sure we want it to be a history lesson. Right. So I said, well, that's no problem. I'll just put up Navajo blankets. It'll only take me a half, you know, half hour, 45 minutes. I'll take down all the saltillos and put up Navajo blankets. Yeah. So they said, you will? Yeah. I go, yeah, you guys go have lunch. I'll put up really nice Navajo blankets because I had plenty of those too, so. <laughs> Anyway, they thought it was very funny. They did <laughs> photograph my house. It is in that book. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. But Christine Mather saw all those saltillos, and, and she was really impressed. So she called Bob Bishop, who was director of the uh, Museum of American Folk Art in New York, and they mm. were working on their quincentenary show for mm. 1992. Mm. So this was 88. And they were going to do a furniture show, but they were having a lot of logistics with the packing and shipping and everything. Right. And so they were skeptical whether they really wanted to do it. It was very expensive and everything. Right. So Christine Mather said, you should see this guy, Saltillos. <laughs> That's a first. He... T- he- he doesn't like a phone, but he leaves it on. <laughs> <laughs> so he said... Let me so, turn it off. Yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah, that's okay. I forget I have it. And so anyway, I get a call from Bob Bishop yeah. and his curator, and they say, we hear you have an unbelievable Saltillo collection, and we'd like to come see it. And I'm going, fine. So they came out to see me. They looked through the Saltillos, and they said, okay, here's the deal. We want to do a Saltillo show for our quincentenary show from the Folk Art Museum and have a tour for two years around the country. I go, oh, that'd be cool. I was into traveling shows anyway and everything. Yeah. And you could be the curator of the show. Nice. And, and we'd like to do a book. And so you can write this book. So Jim Jeter, well, actually, it was, it was I think it was Carl Denzel, who was from the Southwest Museum, had said in the, in the, introduction of Jeter's book. This and is that, a Saltillo book. The, the Saltillo first book, one, really. I the guess. Santa Barbara. Yeah. yeah, the really first kind yeah. of major sort of publication. There mm-hmm. was a few minor things before then. But it said in the beginning of that, there's probably less than 300 Saltillos in existence. Half of them are in American museums. The other half are scattered between private collectors and, you know, foreign museums. Right. So I thought, and so when they said, we want to hire you, we need you to do this research. 
And so I thought, well, I'd just probably go look at all 300 of them <laughs> and see what. Yeah. And so then I'd learn a lot about them because there's still so many questions about saltillos. So the folk art museum had done their book in 1979, and they traveled around the museums and looked at real grand blankets. But in the glossary in the back, they make note of museums that had Mexican serapes. Mm-hmm. So I started with that and contacted those museums, and I started on what I affectionately call the Saltillo Trail. I wanted to see all 300 that existed. Turns out there's a couple more. Yeah, turns out there was a couple more. So I started writing museums. I wrote 300 European museums and sent them a copy of Jeter's book saying, do you have any of these? Right. I didn't ask for Saltillos because they might not have known what they were. I said, here's a book. Do you have any of these? So that was a funny thing, because I had museums send me back pieces and say they would never have anything from Mexico in their museum. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And yet they did. (laughs) Some cases they did, and they didn't know. But I got a lot of information on that, too. So when it's all said and done, and this has been an ongoing project now, we've now found about 2,500 of the 300 that exist. (laughs) Classics. Classics. Yeah. Classics like Maximilian. All, all definitely yeah, eighteen sixty and before. all definitely pre nineteen hundred. Yes, yeah, and there's some confusion as to dating these. If the final verdict was in, I'd already published a yeah. book on them. So, and so did you end up doing that show at the museum? And, oh yeah, and it opened it? in ninety two and, and toured did you for publish? two. Well, Bishop got cancer and died, ah. and so that was in the middle of this. And Bishop was really probably the best museum curator I ever met, and he was enthusiastic about my enthusiasm for saltillos. So he just gave me a great big, much to his the whole museum's chagrin, he gave me a big stack of Museum of American Folk Art stationery and said, just use this. Just tell him you're our curator and just, right. and the curator was incensed that, that he did this. <laughs> he said, just, you can write all these letters on our stationery and say that you're representing the museum and and that'll be a really easy in for you to get into all these museums, yes. which it was. So I started on what I affectionately call the Saltillo Trail to try to find everyone I ever could. Yeah. And like I said, that continues And so today. you think 2,500 is where it's at? Mm, no, but we... Seldom one comes up in an auction or even one comes up privately for sale that I don't have information that on. That you already, already know about. That I don't. It, it, it happens. Yeah. It's, but most of them I know past history. I know a lot of times a lot more about the Saltillo than the person that owns it. Yeah. Because I gathered the information at that time. And how long, how long do you think it takes for most of these classics to be woven? Well, it's been speculated. You see it in the, uh, you know, you see it from anywhere from 18 months to about three years in writings, you see people refer to them that long. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's that inaccurate. I mean, when you think that for a single half panel, because most of them are made in two pieces, certainly not all, there's about 100 weft changes across the face of a saltillo, particularly if you're in the diamond area, which has more weft changes. And so there are about 100 wefts per inch. So to change colors, which is a hand manipulation, it's a hundred times. Yes. There's there's a hundred threads per inch. So that's ten thousand hand manipulations to move one inch. Mm-hmm. And they're a hundred they're a hundred inches long. Yeah. So that's a million hand manipulations yes. to weave one side. Now you have to weave the other side to match and, to match it. <laughs> so and so I, I love when I talk to weavers because some weavers tell you the hardest part is figuring out the design. 
you know, and then you just have to repeat it and copy it. Now, this is Navajo weavers. Yes. Other weavers say it's it's easier to do the design and then to have to match it perfectly for the second half. So they vary on their yes. opinions with that. So. so so now you've done Satios, you've done a museum collection, mm -hmm. and because that wasn't enough for you to handle, you ended up becoming a trading post owner. Well, starting in about mid-'80s, I knew my name was well associated with the best of the 19th century. Yes, Navajo. The century was, yeah. And, and classic. Yeah, Saltios, yeah. anything, yeah, yeah, classics, all of that. Yeah. I realized that the century was going to be over soon, 15 short years. Yes. And two gray hills were by far considered the best of the 20th century. So I kind of thought at ahead that I should get my name associated with it. And they were my favorites. And by then, by 85, 86, you know, I was, when I sold a good rug, there was always a tinge in me that hated it. But when I sold a good two gray, it was a bigger tinge. Mm. And every time I'd find a really good one, I'd say, oh, I really should keep this. And then I'd sell it. And then I'd go, oh, God, I shouldn't uh -huh. have sold it. So about, Was that, you think, because of the craftsmanship? Yeah, the so craftsmanship. Fine? And yeah. I like the fineness, yeah. you know, and the intricacy of the design. I like Saltillo's, you know. Mm -hmm. so, um, so I started collecting them about 86, 87. I remember. Eight, 87, <laughs> I bought my first. Bessie Mini Goats, although I didn't know it was a Bessie Mini Goats. Right. It was just fabulous. It was about 80 wefts per inch. It was four and a half by six and a half. And I paid $10,000 for it. Yeah, that was a lot in 87. Yeah. And at the same time, I bought a first vase for $85,000 or something. I forget how much it was. I got back to my hotel room. And I had backers to kind of help me buy these expensive blankets. I got back to my hotel room, and I had two beds. And I laid the two gray hills on one, and I laid the first face on the mm -hmm. other. The two gray hills was finer, and the wool was shinier. And it was just beautiful. And I'm thinking, this is like... There's a, a disconnect. There's a huge price disparity between this. Yeah. So I started, I started collecting two gray hills. And Did I, you go, okay, at that moment in time, you go, this is what I'm going to do? Well, I'd already been tinged about selling them for like yeah. two years. But did you know at that moment? Absolutely. Yeah. And so I was going to do a book called The Masterpieces of Two Gray Hills. And so I started gathering them, gathering them. Have you been to Two Gray yet? No, I had never <laughs> been. I hadn't been to Two Gray. Well, I'd been there in my running the reservation days by yeah. pawn. Yeah. So I knew, I knew where it was. Yeah. And um, so I started collecting. I got lucky, you know, because... People thought, oh, two gray hills, you know, and nobody really, they were always finer.